Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to the fourth part of our series, Going Through the Book of Galatians. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. Uh, This is Paul, who is our author, narrator. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men who came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But when these guys arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that even by their hypocrisy, Barnabas was led astray, not Barney. Verse 14, it says, when I saw, this is Paul, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of all of them, I said, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you are forcing the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, someone say we too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not, someone shout not, not. by the works of the law. But because, because by the works of the law, listen to this, by what you do, by what you could ever do, by all that I could ever try to accomplish, that still would not be enough. He says, no one is justified by the works of the law. We are justified by Jesus and Jesus only. I want to call our message this morning, uh, the pressure to perform, the pressure to perform. Can we clap our hands one more time? You guys can take a seat. So glad you could be here. Anyone excited to be in church today? Amazing. I'm so glad you could be here. Uh, If you're new, visiting, watching online, you don't know who I am. My name is Harrison. And uh, hey, I'm just so pumped that you could be here. Just so glad that you're in the room with us. Uh, Every single person feels good to see your faces today. So uh, we are in part four of a series going through the book of Galatians. And uh, one of the things that we do here in church uh, is as generally I speak in series. And uh, sometimes like the series that I speak in, sometimes they're uh, topics like relationships or counterfeit gods. And other times we literally just take a book of the Bible and we go through it. And so right now we are going through the book of Galatians. Now, uh, with that, this, uh, we've just been going at it. So I uh, just want to know, anyone been here for this series at all? A few people. Uh, has this been helpful for anyone? Uh, cool. We've, um, and today, we're going to continue it. We've actually read every verse so far uh, in the first chapter of Galatians, and we're going to finish Galatians chapter 2 this morning. And so uh, with that being said, we're kind of just really picking up where we left off last week. So I want to just give a quick recap for those who maybe weren't here or just those who forgot you had a crazy week. Uh, You're like, Harrison, I don't even know what Galatians is. So uh, in this book, this book was written by a man named Paul, and Paul kind of has a central theme in this entire book. And the theme is so simple, and it is this. We are saved by Jesus alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's either all Jesus or you actually have nothing. Hence, we call this series All or Nothing. 
It's either all Jesus or you actually have nothing. The message of Jesus, listen, if you're trying to remember one thing from this series, the message of Jesus is good news. Jesus has made a way where there was no way. There's this idea, you need to understand this. We are created, we were created good. Sin kind of messed that up. Sin has separated us from God, and it is such a gap, the holiness of God and the unholiness of us. There is literally nothing that we can do in our power to bridge the gap. And so the good news is Jesus did it for you. Come on, somebody. Jesus did it for you. And so really what this whole book is, it's a defense against anyone anything or any message that would make you think that there is anything that you can do to be made right with God. It is only through Jesus. And so what we've seen in this book is is really already in just one chapter, Paul is defending this idea. Last week what we saw was that um, Paul went up to the Jerusalem church. Do you guys remember this? So at this time, and you need to understand this book, this is the very, very beginning of what we now know as the Christian church. And so um, what we found out was Paul has his message, his distinct message, right? Jesus, it's only Jesus. And so last week he went to Jerusalem because Paul was a leader, but there was also leaders in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John. And so Paul wanted to make sure that when he went to Jerusalem that they were preaching the same message. He went there with one goal and one goal only to make sure that everyone was on the same page. Hey, you guys preaching only Jesus? And they were like, yep. And Paul's like, sweet. And they're like, make sure you also care for the poor. And he's like, yep, we already do that. You guys remember this? That was last week. And so what you need to understand, though, and and I kind of hit on it in this series, but I really need to hit on it today because it kind of makes up um, a large portion of what's really happening in our story. Um, when, When Peter, Paul, James, and John are all on the same page, that says the only thing you have to do to become a Christian is to put your faith in Jesus, you need to understand how revolutionary this message was, especially for a group of men that were all Jewish men. Now, we've seen in this series, there's really two groups. There's the Jewish people and the Gentiles. The Gentiles are literally anyone that was not Jewish. What we've said in this series, and it's, I think, ringing true, unless we got some Jewish brothers here today, um, most of us are Gentiles. And so what happens is that there's this conflict um, when the church starts, because Jews and Gentiles, culturally, theologically, uh, they're just different. And so one of the things that made the Jewish people different was their observance of what is known as the law. If you want to understand what the law is, if you have a Bible with you, you can go to the first five books, really after Genesis. You can go Exodus um, all the way to Deuteronomy. And those books will give you a snapshot of what the law was and what it really meant to be a Jewish person at this time and to be a follower of God. They had all of these outward things that they do. And these outward things, I want us to get this, were a symbol for them of what it meant to follow God. And so... You can read those books. There's a whole lot of stuff in there. But at this time in the first century, they had three things. There was three things that made the Jewish people stick out. Number one was circumcision. That's, we talked about that a lot in this book. Now, um, you need to understand, in the first century, circumcision wasn't really like a natural thing everyone was doing. 
uh, it was really a primarily Jewish thing because there was no like anesthetics. And so not a lot of people were like, here, pass me your baby in a flint rock. Um, so circumcision, uh, well, you, you guys think Abraham had scissors? You're mistaken. Um, so Jewish people, this is one of their things. Their distinct thing was circumcision. And for them, and obviously only men can be circumcised, but for them, um, it was uh, a symbol that they were part of the community of God. And it was really important. And it sounds weird, sounds kind of stupid, but a lot of what is happening in this book actually teeters around this idea of circumcision. Because essentially it was this. If you are circumcised, you are with God. If you are not circumcised, you are not with him. That was one thing. The second thing was dietary laws. Jewish people ate distinctly different than the people around them. And so again, book of Leviticus, you can read all the difference between clean and unclean foods. And the third one, the third distinction for Jewish people was their holy days, most specifically the Sabbath. They would not work uh, one in seven days. And so these three outward things distinguished them from the culture around them. And they were proud of it. This was who they were. Their whole religious identity was built on these three things. And so when Peter, James, John, Paul get together and they say, hey, to be part of the community of Jesus, guess what? You don't need to do any of those things. That was a revolutionary message. And it was a message that for the Jewish people, it was very, very hard for them to grasp. And although the leaders of the church said, this is the message, there was a whole bunch of Jewish Christians that said, yeah, we hear you, Paul, we hear you, Peter, but um, no, you still need to follow the Jewish law. You still need to get circumcised. That's the conflict. Do you guys understand the conflict? Um, and, and it's important because we're going to see what happens today. So again, last week what we found out was that Peter was on board, right? Peter's like, yeah, Paul, we're on the same page. Jesus plus nothing. Today, what we're going to see, this is important, Peter knows the message. Peter believes the message, but Peter doesn't live out the message. And I really love this story because I think if we're being honest, how many of you guys, a lot of times, we know what is right, we know what we should do, but we do the opposite. That's, that's the story of Peter today. Peter knows what he should do, but he does the opposite. Can we study the word this morning? Yeah. So it says, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I had to oppose him because he stood condemned. For before certain men who came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when these guys arrived, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to what is known as the circumcision group. How's that for a title? Right? <laughs> Here come the circumcised boys. But, but here's the picture. Paul is literally having a meal. And the language and the Greek, um, it wants us to know that when Paul was eating with the Gentiles, this was not a one-time thing. This was not the very first time he did that. Because Paul had agreed the message is not just for Jewish people. It is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. There is no cultural distinctives when it comes to Jesus. And so Paul, Peter, who was a Jew, he would eat with the Gentiles all the time because he agreed, hey, we're all under the same family of Jesus. And so literally this story that we read, we're at most likely a church potluck. This is after service. Everyone's there having a good time. Peter is saying, hey, pass the bacon, like living in my freedom. Um, 
And then all of a sudden, in the distance, it's like a movie. In the distance, Peter sees a group of influential, this is important, Jewish Christians. Now, what's funny is that there is literally no one more influential than Peter. Peter is the head of the church. Yet, it doesn't matter how high you are. Come on, somebody. All of us have insecurities. And so he sees these people coming in the distance. And he's like, oh, my gosh, that's the circumcision group. (laughs) They had clothes on. He just, he knew who they were um, because they're proud of it. But, but literally, so he's at this table, and I want us to understand this moment. Peter literally withdraws. He gets up, and I can almost imagine him scrambling to grab his tunic. Like, and he runs towards the circumcision group, and he's like, Issachar, what are you doing here? I don't know, I don't know their names, so I'm just giving them some Jewish names. Because he's embarrassed that he's eating with the Gentiles. When he knows full well that Jesus isn't just for the Jews, he's for everyone. But he sees this group of people and suddenly his whole persona shifts. He's like, hey guys, what are you doing here? Like, Peter, is that bacon in your hand? He's like, no, I I thought it was turkey bacon. I don't know what this is. No, I wasn't with them. I was just passing by. I don't know. I don't know what happened. And so, so literally, and this is the point I wanted to see. It's kind of funny, but Peter disregarded everything that he believed in in order to look good in front of a certain group of people. Is that relatable to anyone? Peter was willing to literally say, everything I know that is true in Jesus, I'm willing to say, nah, because I care about how a certain people feel about me. Now, What's interesting, I'm going to get kind of, kind of go back in the Bible here. If you don't know the story, it's okay. But if you know the Ark of Peter, this story should kind of ring a bell in your mind of another time when Peter acts very similarly. Now, if you'll know, before Jesus dies, he says to Peter, he says, hey, Peter, before I die, um, you're going to deny me three times. Then Peter's like, bro, I'd never do that. Um, and then when Jesus is about to die, uh, literally three times, people come up to him. And they're like, hey, like, I think I saw you rolling with Jesus. Like, are you, are you from, with Jesus? And three times, he's like, no, I never heard of Jesus. And so it's funny, and the reason I'm referencing this story is because that kind of paints us a picture of Peter. And here's the picture. Peter is the leader of the church. He is the one in which Jesus has entrusted to build the church upon. Yet Peter has a fundamental flaw. He has this thing inside of him where he struggles with the need for the approval of people. He struggles to stay faithful to God in the face of really, you could say, almost peer pressure. Now, this is really important, and, and I want us to understand this story for a number of reasons, but why I think that I want to go back to the story of the denial of Jesus is because a lot of people in this room, if you're Christians, you know that story where he denies Jesus. Not a lot of people know the Galatians story where really, once again, what he's doing is he's denying Jesus. Because a lot of people have this idea that Peter, after that moment, because then Jesus reinstates him, it's a beautiful thing in the book of John, um, and then he preaches in the book of Acts. And a lot of people think in that moment that, like, Peter became Saint Peter, and, like, he never sinned again. 
And he became this leader, this, this person that was without flaw, someone to be worshipped. But what you need to understand is that, and I spoke about this a lot two weeks ago, but what God does is God takes broken people and uses them. That's just what he does. And one of the things you need to understand, there is a very distinctive reason why we only worship Jesus. Because there is only one person who is without sin. There is only one person who is above reproach, without blame, and that is Jesus. If you put your hope in any person, be it Peter, who's gone? Paul, James, John, maybe you loved C.S. Lewis, Augustine, maybe you loved the great Harrison Chaka. At the very end of the day, all of us have one thing in common. Sinner, 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 sinner. Not Jesus. Jesus alone is worthy of worship. And the moment we begin to put our worship in people, we will be let down. The Bible is letting... Peter is the leader of the church here. And literally in this moment, he's letting the, at least the Gentile portion of the church down. Because they're having this meal, and it's kind of funny from the perspective of the Jewish people, but what about the Gentiles sitting at that table? It's like, where's Peter going? Like, I thought we were all one in Jesus, but he's leaving. You see, there's this pressure, I think, that exists to perform. You guys ever feel that pressure? The pressure where if I get around a certain group of people, I need to act different. And at the very end of the day, I want you to understand this. It doesn't matter how holy you are, how saved you are, how long you've been with Jesus. That pressure always exists. It's a pressure that says when I get into certain rooms, I have to act different. Now, one of the reasons I want to talk about why we don't worship people, but we only worship Jesus, is to make sure that we only worship Jesus. But for a lot of us, maybe we're sitting there and we're saying, you know what, like I've never worshipped a pastor or a celebrity. Like I just don't do that. Um, I only worship Jesus. But what I would argue, what I would argue is that one of the reasons that when we get into certain places, certain rooms, or we feel like, man, I can't bring my faith here. The reason we feel that way is because whether we want to admit it or not, the rooms that we're going into, we worship those people. And how do I know I worship those people? Well, it's quite simple. I care more about them than what is right. Like you guys have been in a room before and Everyone's talking, and, and the conversation's going in a way where it's like, man, like, that's my friend they're talking about, and it's, this is really gossip at this point. And like, you feel that urge, like, I should say something, but like, what are they going to think about me? I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person that sticks out. And whether we want to admit it or not, the reason we are like that is because we elevate people to a standard higher than any human should ever go. It is the same thing I know for so many of us. This is how we live in our workplaces, right? It's like I come to church, I'm holy, I'm blessed. Hallelujah, brother, sister. But then I get to my workplace and it's kind of like, well, I don't really know like, if I can bring Jesus here. Like I'm not really sure this is the place to talk about God. And like we're really spiritual, right? Be holy, make it all holy. Like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to impose on any, anyone's freedom. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to say something that might offend anyone. You guys know what I'm saying? But what's funny is like we'll go into these places not wanting to say anything about the one who saved our soul. Yet what I've realized about whatever the room I go into, be it friendship, school, whatever it is, most people will speak boldly whatever is most important to them. 
Yet when it comes to Jesus, we kind of back up a little bit. You guys been in a room where someone starts talking about essential oils? It's like, I'm good. I just use water. No, none for me, thanks. But like, there's, there's a passion. And they don't care if they're going to offend you. They don't care if they're going to lose a friendship. You need to know about essential oils. Right? For the last like, month, like every room you've been into, everyone has told you what they think about love is blind. Like No one cares. It's like, let me tell you about shake. I can't stand them. Bold. You guys acting like you don't know who shake is. It's fine. We'll talk after. But my, my point is, I think a lot of the times, what, what's so funny and ironic about these places and these rooms where we feel like we need to put a performance on, where we need to hide the things that are important to us, no one else does that. Oftentimes, it is those who bear the name of Jesus that are the most meek, and those that bear the name of essential oils that are the most bold. And I wonder why we are like that, but I think the answer so many times is because we care too much about people. You see, the Bible speaks of this concept um, called fear of the Lord. Now, fear, fear of the Lord is not literally to be scared of him, but what it is, is fear of the Lord is to revere him. And what that means is that to have fear of the Lord means that his opinion, what he thinks of me, matters more than anyone else. And so here's the point. When we fear men is when we get into trouble. And to fear man is simply this. It means I care more about pleasing people than I do about pleasing God. To fear man means I care more about pleasing people than pleasing God. Peter, in this moment, in this story, and, and this message, which is so important to Paul, and he's going to tell us the message in depth even more so. But Peter was willing to disregard the message in a moment because right there in that place, he cared more about what people thought about him than what God thought about him. The message of Jesus, this is so important, came to break down walls. The message of Jesus came to break down barriers, racial barriers, religious barriers. Yet in this moment, Peter builds it right back up. He builds it up. Now, what's interesting, and I want us to understand this, is that in the provision and the grace of God, when he called Peter, I believe that God knows all and is in all, through all, above all. So he knew exactly what Peter would do, yet he chose him anyways. And so I say that to say, maybe you're in this room and you feel like, man, I've been fearing people for a long time. Well, the good news is that there is no place the grace of God is not willing to go. And your story is not done. And God wants to take the things that the enemy meant for evil and use them for good. And so God still and will and can use us as long as we are willing to say, hey, you know what? God, I care more about what you think of me than what people think about me. And until I can make that switch where I, I say people don't matter as much as God, I'll always live for their approval. But again, the grace of God is so good. Um, yet one thing I want us to understand about the grace of God um, is that God forgives and God uses and God redeems, uh, but our actions still have consequences. So it says in Galatians chapter 2, it says the other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, the Greek word for hypocrisy is literally to put on a mask, right? To put on a performance. And so what he's saying, he's saying Peter's performance, that's what he's doing. He knows what is right. 
but he's performing for these people. It led other Jews away. Why would it lead other people away? The, better, the bigger question is why wouldn't it? Peter is the most influential person in the church. So what he does, people are going to follow. And so it says, because this was a beautiful meal. It wasn't just Peter with the Gentiles. There were other Jews there too. It was the church potluck. This was Paul's church built upon the beauty and the unity of Jesus. But when Peter, who was a Jew, left because he is the most influential, other Jews followed him. Now, there's a reason it says even Barnabas was led astray. This is the craziest one. Barnabas is Paul's best friend, companion. And Paul had one journey and one journey only, and Barnabas was there for a large part. They literally only preached to Gentiles. So Barnabas' whole ministry, he's a Jew. He's never even seen the Jews. He's only with the Gentiles. And so when Paul says even Barnabas was led astray, he's saying Barnabas was sitting at that table, and he's saying, wait a second, like, I've ministered to the Gentiles, but like, well, Paul's the man. Peter's the man, I guess, so I guess I got to go too. And so what I'm trying to say, and I want us to understand this, is that Peter's actions had consequences. And the reason being was because Peter was someone of influence. Now, I want to speak to us as a church because I believe that we are blessed as a church with so many amazing people and so many amazing leaders. And so what I want every one of us in this room to understand is that your life has influence. Your life has influence. Because maybe we're thinking to ourselves, you know what, like, well, I'm not like Peter. Like, no one looks up to me like people look up to Peter. Like, I'm not that, I'm not a leader, I'm not a pastor. But I want you to understand that your life has influence. You are a leader somewhere. There is no one sitting in this place that does not have influence over someone. And what we said last week, we said everything that God creates, everything that God instills, Satan seeks to counterfeit and Satan seeks to destroy. And one principle is that God is a God of structure. And so God structures things. He has structured the church with Peter being the leader. And so in a world that says, I don't like hierarchies, too bad, God has built them. And so um, what that means is that Satan always attacks the top. Why? Because the top has the most influence. And so there is no doubt that the person he wants to attack the most in this moment is Peter. Because if Peter falls, that means so many people under him will crumble. And so I say that to say, whatever level of influence you have in your life, guess what? The devil respects it. He likes it. Because he's like, wow, I can get a whole lot of people to fall if I just take you down. So listen, you're a boss in this room. You're a CEO in this room. You're the leader of your company in this room. Guess what? The devil loves that. Because if you fall, he can take some people down. Because if your workplace becomes a place of gossip and slander, if I can get the top, I can get everyone. Listen, one of the things I believe that God has instituted above all, and I think one of the most important things on this earth, is the idea of family. And there is nothing that the kingdom of the darkness can stop like the church, but also a family united. And so what the devil wants to do is he wants to seek and destroy and divide families. And one of the things, and I want to speak, and maybe, maybe because I'm a dad now, this is just kind of on my heart, but I just see the weight that God has given us as parents. If you are a mother in this room, if you are a father in this room, you are a leader. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to speak for the females too much because you, you guys are amazing. I don't even want to do you guys injustice. 
So I'll speak for men for a second. Men in this room, and this has been a passion of mine for the last six months, you have a calling on your life, and that is to lead your family. That is the divine and distinct calling that God has given you. And there's two options. You can rise to it or you can crumble. But the calling and the influence remain because God has placed it on you. And the headship that he has on your life is in order that you can bring up your wife so that she can lead with you in the whole family unit. But what that means is with that influence, the devil's going to attack it. Because if I can destroy the heads of the home, I can destroy the whole home. And I think one of the ways in which men are neutered is three things, and it's three Ps. It's porn, it's politics, and it's profession. If he can get us so caught in any of those three things, porn, profession, or politics, he can destroy our whole family. And I just wonder how many of us in this room, how many men in this room, even if you're single, you're stuck in those three things. And I'll talk about women a little bit. Don't worry, I won't leave you guys out. But I can speak for men more boldly because I know, you, I know men struggle with these things. Women might be like, you're not a woman. You can't tell me what I struggle with. But. <laughs> and what the devil wants to do is he wants to seek to kill and to destroy. And I know there are so many people in this room, and you, maybe you're a father now. And you just feel like, man, I don't even know what my father gave me. Like, I know that, like, I know how to saw a piece of wood. And, like, I love, I love the Oilers. But our job as fathers is to lay down for our children an inheritance, not of possession, but of spirituality, of blessing, and the story of Jesus. And what I've seen in this last season, specifically with men, is you have been caught up in things that are essentially irrelevant, Profession, you have a calling on your life to provide, but the devil wants to take that calling and twist it and make you work to a point where you have no time for family, you have no time to lead. Politics, listen, I don't know what happens when you become a father, but like just something inside of you switches. I see it in myself. I can just, I want to talk about gas prices. I don't know why. <laughs> it's like that's when I knew I became a dad. 165. I filled up my car for 40 cents back in the day. <laughs> Two years ago. And so all of these things, like we, we, they look virtuous. Now, porn is just not virtuous. Porn just creates shame. And when you have shame, you actually have no ability to lead your wife or your kids. And so that's where the devil wants to keep you. But these other things, we can make them so virtuous, virtuous, right? Like, oh, that looks good. He's working so hard. Oh, he's so caught up in current events. He's, he's really into that. Well, guess what? If all your kids know is where your political leaning is, but not what Jesus has done in your life, you've missed the point. We've missed the point. If your kids have all of their physical needs met with a house that is far too large for them, but they do not know the name and, and the worth of Jesus in their life, we've missed the point. Your life has influence. Woman, your life has influence. You are our shepherds. You lead the unit. And, and again, I, I'm speaking for families. Just, I know some of you guys are like, I'm not in a family. It doesn't really matter. But these principles apply wherever you want to go, right? They apply in your friend groups. There is a calling on your life. I see it distinctly. It, it, women in this church, we're blessed. We barely have any guy leaders here. It's all women. And they're amazing. And you have a call on your life. And what the devil wants to do is he wants to destroy he wants to take all of those good things, all of those characteristics that God has put inside of you and twist them. 
Why? Because he knows your life has influence. And he knows that if he can get us going down the wrong path, it's not just you that will follow, that will fall. And so what I'm trying to speak to us this morning is I want us to understand that your life has influence. You may not see yourself as a Peter. You may not see yourself as a leader. But guess what? If you're in a family this morning, you are the pastors of your home. You lead the church called your home. There's a calling on that. Some of you guys in your friend group, man, you are the shepherd of your friend group. You are the pastor of your office. Your life has influence. And so today what I want to do is I kind of want to be your Paul to to Peter here. Because Peter says, when I saw that he was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, And this is important. All of our confrontations don't need to be public. The reason this confrontation had to be public was because so many people were led astray. And it was in the process of restoring. And I'm going to talk about the gospel in a second because even in the rebuke that Paul Paul gives Peter, he still points to the gospel. All of our rebukes, you can write this down, should still point people to the gospel. He says in front of them all, he says, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew. <laughs> I heard one commentary, he, he, he rewrote it. He was like, Peter, you eat shrimp, ham, and bacon. <laughs> you live like a Gentile. Like, I saw you mixing fabrics last week. <laughs> Just getting into parts of the law you maybe haven't heard of. Um, you live just like them, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you're trying to force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul is literally saying, Peter, you don't even live like this anymore. You live in the freedom of the gospel, in the freedom of the good news of Jesus. Why are you trying to force them to do that? So here's the thing I want us to understand. We all need someone in our life that loves us enough to tell us when we're wrong. I need someone that loves us. Underline that part if you're taking notes. Loves me enough. Loves me enough to tell me when I'm wrong. Listen, Paul flexes a lot that like my message came from Jesus. But at the very end of the day, Peter is still the most influential person. And so in this moment, it would have taken guts for Paul to stand up to Peter. Especially in front of everyone. But what Paul was saying to Peter was, I love you so much. I love you too much. I love the church. I love the message of Jesus too much to not tell you when you're in the wrong. And I'll tell you why this is important and why every single one of us need this in this day, in this age. Because we live in a world where the most (laughs) rebuke that we get is when someone disagrees with us, they say, you know what? Just live your truth. You guys heard that? Like someone is putting their life down the toilet and it's like, you know what? Live your truth. Live your truth is the most unloving thing you can say to someone. Because if someone's truth is leading them to destruction, they need rebuke. And sometimes the rebuke we need is more truth than what people think is truth. And live your truth is a nonsensical statement because truth by definition is exclusive, meaning there is no your truth, there is only truth. Sorry. Don't make me go Nancy on Um, (laughs) y'all. 
There's a lady named Nancy Piercy. If you're not reading her books, get with the times. Um, <laughs> but I need someone that loves me enough to tell me that I'm wrong. That says, hey, guess what? The truth that you're looking for is Jesus. You need to understand this. When we as Christians talk about truth, we don't talk about concepts. We don't talk about statements. We talk about a person. Jesus is truth embodied. And so when we point people to truth, what that means is we're pointing people to Jesus. And so what I'm saying is I need someone that loves me enough when I'm wrong, they'll point me to Jesus. The question is, how do I find this person? How do I find someone that will be open with me, that will rebuke me, that will tell me when I'm wrong? Some of you guys aren't going to like this. The answer is simple. Ask someone. Harrison, how do I find a person like that? Ask someone. You can write it like this. Be intentional. Be intentional. Listen, I love the community that is called church and us being together in this place. But if you are never intentional, no one's going to come up to you and say, hey, do you mind if I just rebuke you every couple of weeks? (laughs) Hey, I noticed you're kind of a fool. Could I just like... It's not going to happen. And so we need to be intentional. Listen, one of the things, I've never led a church before, um, leading this church now. What I realize is that I'm the top of the food chain. And so what that means, if I am not intentional, I will not have people that are above me to rebuke me. But just because I lead this church doesn't mean I don't need to be rebuked. I do. Trust me, I do. Praise be to Jesus for my wife. She rebukes. But, but as a church, that's why we've intentionally put elders in place that are pastors, that are older than me, that are more seasoned than me. Pastor Brett, Pastor Ryan, you guys have met them, seen them. They are here in this church above all. Like, yes, to love the church, yes, to guide the church, but they're here and they exist to keep me in check because I need that. So listen, if you guys like ever see me and I'm doing something crazy and you're like, who do I talk to? Go talk to them. That's the best people to talk to. Because we need parameters in place. We need people in place. I'm going to be honest. Um, I love Pastor Brett. I love Pastor Ryan. But I felt like I needed more. And I just joined um, a relational network of pastors throughout Canada uh, that I'm going to be meeting with in relationship, phone calls, constant communication. Why? Because I need to be kept in check. And the reason I'm saying this, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this, the reason I want us to understand Peter, if Peter needs to be kept in check, you need to be kept in check. I'll tell you this, if you have no people in your life that you are confessing your sins to, if you have no people in your life that have ever rebuked you, you are not living the way in which God has designed us to live. The language of Christianity, write this down, is submission. The language of Christianity is submission. What that means is I need to submit to people. Why? Because my heart doesn't want to submit, my heart wants to elevate. My heart wants to be the top of the food chain. But I need people that I submit to. I need people that can say, hey, Harrison, you were in the wrong. I need people that I can confess my sins to. We all need it. If if you're a couple in this church, one of the best things you can do is have a couple that is above you, that can mentor you, that's a few steps ahead of you. They can say, hey, we're here for you. We're here with you. I think when I look at our church, um, one of the beauties of our church, and I think it's happened in the grace of God, is that we have this kind of divide. We've got a lot of young people and a lot of people, um, not old people, 
older people. You got a, a lot of young people, a lot of older people, and there's a few stragglers in the middle. Um, but I think that it's not by coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's a grace gap. And I think that God has set up our church in such a way where we have all of these young people um, that need, and I'm speaking to you if you're older, they need you because you're a few steps ahead of them. And maybe some of your older people are like, well, you know what, like I got my kids. And um, listen, when your kids are young adults, I have some news to break to you. This is going to be hard. You guys ready? Um, you can say the same thing as someone else, but sometimes when it comes from someone else, it just sounds better because it didn't come from you. You guys know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so what that means, and I'm talking about this gap, is like, hey, maybe in this season, like, you want to, like, really, like, keep your daughter or your son in line. But maybe God has graced another young person for you in this season that's going to take the wisdom that your rebellious child is rejecting <laughs> and you can give it to them. And it's a grace gap. And for us young people in this church, like I know, like I know you guys crave it. You may not feel you crave it. You crave those connections. You crave those things. And I think that God has set up our church in such a way where we can have these life-giving relationships, these intergenerational gaps I told people that when God sees our church, he wasn't surprised. Like, oh my gosh, what a weird gap they have down there. <laughs> no, it's a grace gap where we can now exist together in community and have people that are maybe one step above us, maybe one step below us. Listen, older people, you're thinking, well, I'm just going to pour, 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 pour. Guess what? Maybe that 21-year-old can speak something to you that your daughter needs to know or that you need to know about how to relate to her or to him. And we can have these life-giving relationships. And the truth is, I'm speaking with a generational gap because it exists, but we can also be in submission to people in ages irregardless, it doesn't matter, right? The main thing is we just need people in our life that we are in real community with. The purpose of church is to be in real community with people. Everyone needs to be reminded. Here's the point. We all steer off the path. I steer off the path, you steer off the path. We all steer off the path. And so Paul in this moment was able to be that person. And I'm going to show, he points us back to the gospel, so I'm going to finish with the gospel. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Now, when Paul says it like that, um, it's like quotation marks because the Jews would call them sinful Gentiles. He doesn't actually mean it. He's proven a point. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So his rebuke is not to even just get down on Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, you should have known better he says, let's get everyone back to the gospel. He says, listen, Peter, what you did was wrong because Jews and Gentiles, we are the same. We are all justified, not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done. He says, listen, no one, he says, no one is justified by the works of the law. So why are you trying to build up what Jesus has already tore down? And so he says, verse 17, he says, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, 
we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. So basically what he's saying is like, well, if we do away with the law, doesn't that kind of mean we're sinners? He says, no. He says the real sin is if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. In other words, he says, if I try to bring back what Jesus has already done, if I try to build back the system, the system that was fulfilled in Christ, I'm in the wrong. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Let me put this in plain language. What he's saying, he's saying, I've stopped trying to perform so that I can actually begin to live in the goodness and the mercy of Jesus. You need to understand something. I'm kind of switching it up here for a second. But if we live in a way, and so many of us, when it comes to the performance that we put on, the greatest performance you put on is not with people, it's with God. And you put on this mask, like there are things that you can say, things that you can do, places you can volunteer that will make you more holy. He says, Paul is saying, I died to that way. We saw that two weeks ago. He says, I used to do everything. There was no one like me. There was no one as holy, no one as righteous as me. But I died to that so I might live for God. Because until I put away that mask, until I put away that performance, I'll never be able to understand the grace of Jesus. And so he says, I love this verse. He says, and you can get this tattooed. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's literally saying, my old way, my old self, I've crucified it. It's gone, it's put away. The old way of putting on performances, the old way of trying to be enough, I've laid it aside so I can believe that Jesus is enough. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness, he says, could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He's saying, if you could have been made right by what you do and what you did, you never would have needed Jesus. If all it took was being circumcised, if all it took was observing a couple things and following a couple rules, he says, Christ died for nothing but it is all about the grace of Jesus. And in the grace of Jesus, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. I know for a lot of us, we can hear these words, and I want you to hear, you are saved by faith, by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do. There's no performance. There is no rules, there is no laws, there's no regulations that make you right in the sight of Jesus. Not one thing. It is Christ and Christ alone. And I know I can say that, but I know a lot of us, we struggle to believe it. And we struggle to understand it. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? It means when Jesus died, he didn't just die, he took all that old stuff with him. He took your sin with him. He took your old ways with him. And he bore it all on the cross. And there's nothing that we can do to gain salvation. And so the language that he uses, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. That's baptism language. If you've been baptized in this room, um, what happened in that moment when you went under, what you were just simply saying is, hey, the old me is dead and gone. Where's T-I at? The old me is dead and gone. And the new, the new me now lives 
I live in Christ. And I want to encourage, if you're in this room, you've never been baptized before, I encourage you, get baptized. Because what baptism is, you're literally saying, hey, the old me, the old way, the performance way, that mask I used to wear, I'm taking it off. And the new, the new me lives. And it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to that message. We hope that you were encouraged and inspired. If you made a decision to follow Jesus or you want to find out more about our church, why don't you head over to kingdomchurch.ca. We would love to get in contact with you. Until next time, take care. Thank you.